Welcome to Lawson Insight. I'm Mark Fancourt-Smith, a partner at Lawson Lundell's Vancouver office. And I'm Alexandra Stoichev, an associate in the firm's Calgary office. On this episode, we will be speaking with Nicole Skugadal and Jim Boyle. Nicole is a partner in the Vancouver office who practices in the areas of labor, employment, and human rights law, as well as privacy law. And Jim is an associate in Lawson Lundell's Vancouver office and is also a member of the firm's labor, employment, and human rights practice group. Jim and Nicole, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. We wanted to talk with you about recent developments in employment and human rights law and thought we would focus our conversation today on two issues that you'd recently covered in a recent webinar that your group put on. Uh, The first is a discussion about some developments at the Human Rights Tribunal, and then we'll move across the country to talk a bit about the decision from the Supreme Court of Canada that's causing employment lawyers, and particularly those in Ontario, uh, to really reconsider how employment contracts are drafted. So starting at the BC Human Rights Tribunal, as likely not that surprising. A number of complaints being brought before it recently relate to masking and specifically uh, masking policies both for employees and for patrons of businesses. Essentially, these cases involve individuals who filed complaints saying that a requirement to wear a mask violates or infringes upon a protected human right. So, Nicole, what can you tell us about the approach the tribunal seems to be taking when dealing with these complaints? I would say, Mark, that they're taking a very practical approach that um, is consistent with the existing jurisprudence of the tribunal. So they've issued two screening decisions, and screening decisions are preliminary inquiries by the tribunal where they basically put out for the public their findings. And likely why they are doing this is in response to the significant number of masking complaints so that people know uh, the views of the tribunal. The first case involves a grocery store who in September of 2020 had a mandatory masking policy. Customer came to the store and was turned away because she was not wearing a mask. The customer said, well, I have a medical condition. I shouldn't have to wear a mask. And the security guard asked the individual customer, you know, what is your medical condition? Why is that? Is there something we can do here to help you purchase goods from our store? The individual simply got upset and left and filed a human rights complaint, alleging that she was discriminated against based on a disability. But at the tribunal, that customer refused to tell the tribunal what her disability was, said, well, that's private. I have a medical condition, can't wear a mask. I don't have to tell you what it is. And so what the tribunal said, in those circumstances, in order to get the protections of the Human Rights Code, you need to be able to establish that you fit within a protected ground that is protected under human rights legislation, in her case, a disability. If you're not willing to do that, then your complaint is dismissed because you haven't established that you have a disability. But they went further um, and they said, but to be clear here, The human rights legislation does not protect someone because wearing a mask makes it difficult to breathe or causes anxiety. That on its own is not enough to trigger the protections of the code. The code doesn't protect personal preferences not to wear a mask because you believe they're pointless or you disagree with mask wearing. So that's, those are the findings of the tribunal in that case. And to some extent, that was an easy case for the tribunal because the customer wasn't willing to provide any evidence of her disability. If there's a situation where 
a customer of a store has a bona fide disability that precludes them from wearing a mask, then this store organization would be required to accommodate that individual to the point of an undue hardship. So that could mean um, that, you know, they would have to have curbside delivery, you know, offer to the customer, what's your list of goods you'd like to purchase? We will go do that for you. So th- there is obligations upon these organizations if someone has a bona fide reason for not uh, wearing a mask. And, and one thing about this case is that it was from September 2020. And at that point in time, in British Columbia, there wasn't a mandatory masking mandate indoors, similar to now. And so those same kind of principles that, you know, organizations can have a policy that requires masks to enter their premises, provided that they do accommodate someone who has a bona fide disability, but that needs to be proven. You mentioned that there were two screening cases. What were the grounds of the second? Yeah, the second one involves the workplace context and religion. And so this is a case involved an employee who refused to wear a mask because it was his religious creed not to wear a mask. And as we got to work, said, I'm not wearing a mask today. This It's my religious belief that I don't have to. The employer said, sorry, you can't come to work and sent him home. And ultimately his employment was terminated. The employee filed a human rights complaint. And the arguments that he made before the tribunal were that wearing a mask interfered with his God-given ability to breathe. Uh, he also argued that we are all made in the image of God. And a big part of his image was the ability to identify his face and to cover up his face, apparently dishonored God. But this individual went further in his complaint. He also put a whole bunch of statements in about his belief that mask wearing was useless. It doesn't protect people from the coronavirus, etc. And what the tribunal did with that is they said, look, the human rights legislation doesn't protect an individual's opinion that masks are ineffective. And that's not, that isn't a religious belief that's protected. So, you know, it's, it's a sort of an interesting case because religious protection under human rights legislation has been very broadly defined because the courts don't want to get into the position where they are opining on what is the correct religious doctrine. But um, in this case, the individual went further and really this was a complaint about his belief uh, with respect to masks not being effective. And so for that reason, the complaint was dismissed. And so you had mentioned earlier that the Human Rights Tribunal in British Columbia is facing a significantly higher uh, number of complaints these days or cases. And I'm wondering, is this uh, higher caseload mostly related to masking? And if so, what effect do you think these um, uh, screening decisions will have on that caseload? The Human Rights Tribunal is reporting that the cases in the past year have dramatically increased uh, to the highest level since the tribunal was created 18 years ago. And they have stated that a large number of these cases pertain to masking. So we are hopeful that the screening decision will reduce that caseload because the impact of that increased caseload on organizations that have complaints brought against them and on individuals who want to have their human rights complaint heard before the tribunal are are being significantly adversely impacted by delays Normally, as a respondent, you would know if a human rights complaint uh, was filed against your organization, say, four to six weeks. Now that's taking, you know, four to five months to get that notification. 
And then the entire process is also delayed. The first step in a human rights complaint is the parties have the option of participating in a voluntary mediation. And those mediations are highly successful, typically resolve the vast majority of human rights complaints. So a useful process for the parties. That used to happen within two to three months, and now it's at least probably six months before you're getting to a mediation. So the impact of this delay is fairly significant. Uh, and, and we've seen it in the context of masking cases where and, you know, an individual waits a number of months to file a complaint. Then the organization doesn't hear about the complaint from the tribunal for another four months. Well, now we have, you know, six, eight, ten months have passed since the incident happened. It's very hard for an organization to go back, gather the evidence and, and the facts that happened at, you know, the time of the alleged uh, human rights contravention. And so switching gears a little bit um, away from the, the masking complaints, um, I understand that there's been a change in the Human Rights Tribunal's approach to compensation awards. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that change and its implications. So when the Human Rights Tribunal finds that there has been a breach of the Human Rights Code in the employment context, they typically award two types of damages. One is damages for wage loss, and the other is damages uh, for injury to dignity. We are seeing in recent case law in British Columbia an increase in both of these heads of damages. Historically, in BC, our human rights tribunals' awards for wage loss were somewhat similar to what we would see a court award for damages in an employment claim for wrongful dismissal. Human rights may have been a bit higher historically, but not significantly. And there's been a clear uh, departure from that. And I'm going to talk about one case just to, to illustrate that for you. Um, and in, in that case, the tribunal said very clearly in its decision that wage loss awards for discrimination are inherently different from the calculation of reasonable notice damages in employment law. And, and that difference is that the harm in a wrongful dismissal case arises from the failure of the employer to provide reasonable notice of termination. Whereas the harm in the human rights context is grounded in the effects of the discrimination on the complainant. So the damage award for wage loss will vary depending on the impact of the discrimination on the individual. And a case that highlights that very well is a case within the last year. And I'll just quickly go over the facts of this case. There's an employee. She worked for a day and was terminated at the end of her day. When she started her work day, she was asked to disclose whether she was taking any medications. She disclosed a number of prescriptions for various mental health conditions. Proceeded to start work for the day in a clerical role, and it was very clear she could not perform the job duties. She couldn't, didn't know how to use Excel. Her typing skills were very poor. So at the end of that day, the employer decided, not the right fit, we're going to terminate uh, employment. In that termination meeting, the manager said to the employee, hey, why didn't you tell me about all these mental health issues when we hired you? To which the employee said, well, is that a problem? And the manager said, that made me feel uncomfortable. The employee then is dismissed and files a human rights complaint alleging that her termination was related to her mental health conditions. The tribunal held that one part of the reason for termination was this individual's mental uh, health conditions. And you only need one part to have a breach of the Human Rights Code. There were many other reasons why this employee 
wasn't kept on, uh, including her inability to perform the job. But because one part uh, pertained to a ground in the human rights legislation, there was a breach. And the impact of this termination on this employee was incredibly pronounced. She didn't leave her house for a year. She became suicidal. It damaged the relationship with her daughter. This was all proven on evidence before the tribunal. And so when the tribunal looked at this, they said, this discriminatory act has had a very significant impact on this woman. And they awarded her 18 months wage loss with a one-third contingency in the event that maybe she wouldn't have passed the probationary period. So ultimately, we have an employee who worked one day that received 12 months wage loss. In the employment context, that same employee would have worked one day in the probationary period, probably would have been awarded nothing. Um, and the, the, in that case, there was also a $30,000 injury to dignity award. In another case in the past year, the tribunal found that there was a sexual harassment of a receptionist. The receptionist was employed for seven months and was awarded 19 months wage loss. In the employment context, the the damage award for a seven a receptionist with seven months of service would likely have been one to two months. So considerable increase in damage awards. So a good reminder to employers out there to be very careful when there are human rights issues because they can be extremely costly. Now, the next topic we wanted to talk to the both of you about now, I'll direct this to Jim, was a relatively recent Supreme Court of Canada case uh, from 2020 called Matthews and Ocean Nutrition Canada, LTD, um, in which the plaintiff, Dave Matthews, not that Dave Matthews, but a Dave Matthews, uh, claimed constructive dismissal because of ongoing bullying and harassment and a marginalization of his role. So, before we dive into the implications that this case is uh, is having and will continue to have for employers and specifically employment contracts, uh, Jim, what can you tell us about the case? Uh, well, uh, first, you know, it's probably good that you point out that it's not that David Matthews, just because uh, there may be some fans out there that would otherwise get excited. So this case has came out uh, around the end of last year. It's, a, as you said, Marcus, Supreme Court of Canada decision um, that we think is going to have quite broad implications for employment contracts and employment law going forward, although those remain to be seen. So the plaintiff in this case, Mr. Matthews, was a very senior level chemist working for the employer, and he'd been working there for about 14 years or so. At some point, a new uh, executive came on to which uh, Mr. Matthews reported, and this executive did not like Matthews for whatever reason, and as the court put it, started a, a campaign of marginalization against Matthews where um, they, they left him in doubt about his future prospects with the company, and they, they reorganized his reporting structure and, and took away some of his responsibilities, and basically just made Mr. Matthews feel very marginalized in this position that he'd held for a very long time. So Matthews was not happy about this situation, but, but sort of stuck it out for a while, partially on the basis that he suspected that the company would be uh, sold at some point in the near future. And as part of his terms of employment, in the event that the company was sold, he would be entitled to a significant payout uh, pursuant to the company's long-term incentive program. So if he was around and still employed at the time that the payout happened, he would get something in the range of $1.1 million. So a so significant amount of, of money that he didn't want to leave on the table. Uh, now, the, the wrinkle was that the, his entitlement to that payment was, according to his contract, limited by uh, or limited to circumstances where he remained actively employed 
with the company at the time of, of the sale, the realization event for the purpose of the contract, and that he had not been uh, terminated, whether with or without cause. So there's contractual language to that effect. Uh, nevertheless, Mr. Matthews at some point decided he couldn't take it anymore, and uh, due to his, his treatment by the employer, resigned from employment. About 13 months later, the company did go through a sale. So if Mr. Matthews had been employed and had been working at that time, there's very little debate that he would have been entitled to this large uh, long-term incentive payment uh, or program payment. But, of course, uh, so, so Mr. Matthews sued the company for wrongful dismissal, uh, alleging constructive dismissal, which, which effectively means that uh, he didn't actually resign. He was pushed out by the company. And when an employee is constructively dismissed in those circumstances, they can usually claim against the company for damages as if they had been terminated on a without cause basis. So he brought his claim and, and uh, in the lower courts, the courts concluded that he was entitled to 15 months reasonable notice. So the realization event, this sale, had he kept working, would have taken place at the 13-month mark while he still would have been working. But the employer took the position that, well, I mean, that's fine that he may be entitled to 15 months reasonable notice, but our contract says that if he's not actively employed at the time that this realization event occurs, he's not going to get any payout anyway. So even though we terminated you, uh, Mr. Matthews without notice due to the constructive dismissal, you're not entitled to anything. So this, this issue wound its way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And Supreme Court of Canada uh, looked at the issue and and essentially reorganized the law as applied to these sorts of uh, provisions in contracts that limit entitlements on termination of employment. So what the Supreme Court of Canada said about this was that when you are approaching limiting clauses in a contract that purport to take somebody's entitlement to something like an LTIP away, um, you need to go through an analysis to determine uh, two things. One, you look at what an employee would have received during a reasonable notice period if the employee had worked throughout that period. And then two, once you've determined what they would have earned, you look at the contract to see if the language unambiguously takes away that right. So the presumption is that if something would have been paid out if you keep working, that then it will be paid out unless there's some clear language that takes it away. So the court looked at the language in, in the agreement here that said that Mr. Matthews would have to be actively employed and that he wouldn't be entitled if he was terminated with or without cause and all that. And the court determined that what, the, what was lacking in the agreement was any stipulation that, that Mr. Matthews would not get paid out on termination without notice or, or any other language that specifically said that even if you work during a reasonable notice period, you will not get paid this amount out. Ultimately, the court found that the language in issue did not take away Mr. Matthews' right or did not expressly set out or apply to the particular circumstances of this case, and therefore the presumption that he would be entitled to anything that would have been paid out had he not been terminated without notice stood, and Mr. Matthews was ultimately entitled to this uh, very large LTIP payment. So a key takeaway uh, from this for employers in particular is it seems to me that they really need to carefully draft the employment contract to contemplate not just general but perhaps specific circumstances under which an employee would not be entitled uh, to a bonus or other payments in the event that they're no longer working. Is that fair? 
That, that's absolutely fair. So, you know, I think that the, the, the big takeaway for, for employers here is that you need to very carefully draft these sort of um, oppressive clauses in contracts or, or clauses that might be seen by a court as being oppressive towards an employee and, and make sure that they contemplate any of the possible circumstances that could arise uh, in, in respect of the termination of employment. And if they don't contemplate circumstances, courts will read them or courts will interpret them very strictly against the employer and will will not read into a contract any language that is not expressly set out on the face of the contract. And I would add to that one point is that it also needs to be clearly explained to the employee. There's also been cases in the context of bonus plans and stock option plans where even if the language is crystal clear, the fact that the employee may not have understood it or it wasn't brought to the employee's attention can be a problem. So I think it's imperative on employers as well to ensure that they're, they clearly document that clauses were brought to the employee's attention, that it was easy for the employee to understand, that it wasn't overly legalistic, you know, particularly if you're talking about more junior employees um, that may not be able to understand and, and comprehend legal language. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, as as an example, we're, we're seeing that uh, come out in a bunch of Ontario cases these days where um, employees entitlement to, for example, commission is limited on termination of employment. And so you're, you're bang on, Nicole, that the lesson from these cases is not, is not only do you need to have a perfectly drafted clause, but you need to go through the work of sitting down with the employee and explaining to them the import of that clause. Uh, and as a, as a sort of practical tip that employers might think about that was successful in at least one recent case, um, ha- having the employee initial each page of the contract can be can, can assist in demonstrating that not only was the employee provided a copy of the agreement, but it was actually walked through with the employee. Now, again, just simply having somebody pro rata sign the corner of a contract is not necessarily going to uh, win at the end of the day. Uh, the courts will evaluate the actual facts. So if the employee, in fact, does not read it, but signs off on it, that will be relevant. But there are little things that employers can do to help record the fact that if they are walking through the contract with the employee, that it did, in fact, happen. And that will serve as evidence uh, in the event there's a dispute about this fact at a trial. Um, Jim, you had mentioned in a recent discussion that we had that there's an Ontario court decision that has applied Matthews in a way that um, is somewhat interesting and may uh, be an Ontario court decision, affect employees and employers specifically in Ontario. Um, and that made me think, as we move towards more acceptance of remote work, how are employers to deal with situations where an employee uh, may have originally been employed in Ontario but may now be performing a large portion of their work remotely from Alberta or Manitoba or a different province in Canada? That's an excellent question, and I I think it's one that doesn't have a a clear answer at this stage. (laughs) Frankly, the way that our, our employment standards legislation is set up um, is, is not really conducive towards the modern environment and the modern realities of, of work. Uh, employment standards legislation, by and large, is set up to, uh, for circumstances where there is an employer located and operating in a single province and they have employees that stay in that province that, you know, wake up in their houses, drive to the office at work, sit in the office of the factory all day and then come back home. Uh, the, the reality is that, that the, the assumption of employment standards legislation is that where an employee is located say in British Columbia and performs work in British Columbia, they'll be subject to employment standards legislation. 
if the employer is located in another province and the employee is still performing work in, in British Columbia, then probably BC's employment standards will still apply to, to that employee as well. Uh, if the, the circumstances are reversed and the employee is working in another province, say exclusively, and the employer is located in BC, there's an arguable basis for saying the other province's legislation will apply to that employee instead of BC's. The more complicated circumstance that we are encountering now is employees who work exclusively remotely and, you know, at various times will work, say, part of the year in BC, part of the year in Ontario, part of the year in Quebec, maybe. And in those circumstances, it is not always necessarily going to be clear which employment standards legislation will apply to the employee at the end of the day. Uh, different employment standards legislation has different um, uh, requirements or, or guidance on what happens in those circumstances. I think Ontario's employment standards legislation actually has some commentary on that. But in BC, for example, um, the determination of whether or not BC's Employment Standards Act will apply to an employee is really contingent on the Employment Standards branch's consideration of a number of contextual factors that really relate to, you know, is there a substantial connection between the work performed by the employee and British Columbia. So, you know, if an employee is primarily located in British Columbia but dips into Alberta temporarily and then comes back, their entire circumstance might still be governed by BC employment standards legislation, but it is less clear what happens where an employee works, you know, uh, half the year in BC and then the other half in Alberta. I want to say one last thing about that, you know, just in terms of the, um, the application of employment standards legislation. The reason this can be challenging for employers is because typically you draft your employment contracts to comply with the employment standards legislation of the province where you expect the employee to work. Uh, and so employment standards legislation differs from province to province a little bit. Um, one of the most important differences can arise in the context of, of termination entitlements. What, you know, what notice or pay in lieu of notice you get on termination of employment. And so usually when we're drafting an employment agreement for say a BC employee or an Ontario employee will draft that termination provision to ensure it complies with that legislation. But if you have an employee whose employment contract is compliant with, or, or the termination clause is compliant with the termination provisions of one set of legislation, say BC's legislation, that may not be compliant with the termination requirements of Ontario's employment standards legislation. So if you have that employee moving from BC to Ontario with the same contract in place, and then that employee's employment is subsequently terminated in Ontario, it may be that because the Ontario Employment Standards legislation applies to that employee at that time, that the termination provision is now invalid, and the employee might in those circumstances be entitled to significantly uh, higher amounts of notice or pay in lieu and, or reasonable notice of common law. I would say a good practice is never dismiss an employee in Ontario if you can avoid it. <laughs> Move them back out to BC and then and then end the employment relationship. That's not always practical. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like there's going to be some interesting uh, decisions coming out on that very issue in the next few months or years. So we'll have to have you guys back on to chat about that. Oh, absolutely. Well, Jim and Nicole, thank you so much for being on today. And like like we said, we'll have to uh, have to have you back on to discuss what, you know what's happened in both of these subject areas. But thanks so much for coming. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on Lawson Insight, and thanks again to Jim and Nicole for joining us today. You can also stay up to date by connecting with us on social media using the handle at Lawson Lundell, and by subscribing to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>